This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 57 The Physician Writer with Dr. Kimmery Martin. In this episode, hear all about. Kimmery's journey to two books, The Queen of Hearts and The Antidote for Everything. Hear her story in medicine, how she incorporated her passion of writing, and what she has learned along the way. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. This episode is the physician writer, and I'm so excited to bring this to you. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Kimmery Martin. Kimmery is one absolutely incredible woman. She has supported me on my own journey. Without knowing me ahead of time, I reached out to her blindly, and she called me, and we talked for an hour, and we've been friends ever since. She is an emergency medicine physician, and she is also a very successful author. She has written two books, The Queen of Hearts, and her newest novel, The Antidote for Everything, is being released on February 18th. She completed her medical training at the University of Louisville in Vanderbilt. And she lives with her hubby, and she is mom to three children in Charlotte, North Carolina. She is an absolute gem who has followed her passion for fiction writing and incorporated that into her life in medicine. Can't wait to see what you think. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to have Kimmery Martin with me. As you guys heard in her bio, she's absolutely incredible. Kimmery, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Natalie. So I am just in love with your whole story. You're a physician who has now become an extremely successful author. And you know that I love books and writing and I'm working on my own. So you have a really special place in my heart, mostly because your books are incredible, but also you've been so kind and helpful to me on this journey. And you didn't have to be, you didn't know me beforehand. And I just want to say that's so special and thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm, I feel really fortunate to be a member of two professional communities that are known for giving each other a leg up. And I think female physicians and female writers are just inherently supportive of one another. It's never, to me, seemed like a zero-sum game. I feel like you could reach out to another doctor or another writer for help and you would get it. I love that because... I just think there's so much we can gain when we're elevating each other or using what we've learned to try to help other people. And I just think you're a living example of that. So I love you so much and thank you. I want to start by having you start by telling us about your decision to become a doctor. Was this something you always wanted to do? Did you decide later on? What was your journey to medicine? I'm a late bloomer and kind of a dysfunctional mess. So I didn't have (laughs) a life plan or anything like that. Um, I I kind of got interested in medicine through my interest in science. 
and ironically, uh, literature. I, I remember reading a book in college um, where one of the characters was this badass female doctor. And I'm not going to tell you which one because you'll make fun of me. Okay, I'll tell you. Okay, tell me, tell me. I'm like, wait. <laughs> this is so random. I can't believe I'm starting with this. I was reading Patriot Games by Tom Clancy. <laughs> and the main character is, is married to this absolute badass ophthalmologist. He's always like zipping around in a Porsche and operating. And I thought, hey, I could be that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Inspired by literature, right? Um, so yeah, that's as shallow as it gets. But I, I actually was doing some research in college, um, working with children who were getting bone marrow transplants. And I got really interested in the medical side of it. My major was psychology and I was um, doing a thesis on their coping mechanisms. And so I, I started late but realized pretty quickly I had a genuine passion for both the science aspects of medicine and the patient care aspects and um, have loved my career. So how did you choose what specialty to go into? When did that happen for you in medical school? Well, again, I didn't do a great job of that. I actually started in general surgery um, because I loved operating and um, I did a general surgery internship and decided to switch. Um, And it was a great internship, ironically. Um, I I loved that year. It was pre-work hour limits. And so we were working, you know, well over 100 hours a week, every week. Um, And for various reasons that actually really didn't have a whole lot to do with the, the program or the specialty, I decided to switch. And I went into emergency medicine, which was my other field I really loved. I like procedures. Yeah, I had no idea you switched. Did you know that I switched? No. Yes. So I I matched into ER. So I did an intern year in ER and like the program was great. The people were amazing. It just wasn't right for me. And so then I switched to OBGYN and started kind of over after that. So Well, you have to make these decisions when you're a relatively ignorant, you know, 20, 20 what, 26 year old? Um, Even, yeah, you're so young. You're so young and you don't know what your life is going to entail. You know, you're making these enormous decisions without a whole lot of expertise or experience in the, in the field. So yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one that did that. I know we're in a really small <laughs> little club here of people who picked a field and then realized it wasn't right for us and quit it. So I have a huge, you know, platform on quitting things that are not right for you, that it is okay Oh, that's, that's something I talk about a lot, actually, is the concept of reinvention. And um, I think there's something very gratifying and very rewarding about taking a risk when you don't know if you'll succeed or not. And then failing is an important part of life. You know, there's some, there's some quote, I think it's Elon Musk or somebody that said, if you're not failing, you're not innovating. Yes. And so I, I completely agree that sometimes you got to fail at something. Not that so, I would call switching specialties failure necessarily, but you know what I mean? You know, it I, feels like a failure though, doesn't it? Because you work so hard to get yeah. to this journey to match and you're there and then it's not right. At least for me, mm-hmm. I had this feeling that it wasn't right. And I was like, is it me? Is it the field? Am I failing? I felt a lot of pressure. It was actually hard to come to that decision and say, mm-hmm. you know what? I got to leave this. This is not my path in medicine. Yeah. So you started in ER and switched to a surgical field and I started in a surgical field and switched to ER. So we're kind of like, we're opposites. <laughs> That's so funny. So you switched. Okay. So you did general surgery. You realized that was not really right for you and switched over to ER. Mm-hmm. And then what, what was your first job like? What type of job did you have after residency? Well, so interestingly, I had a year off after my internship before I matched again. So, (coughs) excuse me, I wound up 
moonlighting for a year with just this one year of general surgery internship under my belt um, in a small ER in the Appalachian Mountains in Kentucky. And this was before internet was really fast. So I had to look everything up in books if I didn't know it. And I mean, I, I was okay with trauma, but not necessarily okay with OBGYN. Yeah, <laughs> all the other things that walk in the door. So that was insane, um, but a real education. And then I matched in ER, went to Vanderbilt, um, got my first job in Charlotte. And I've worked in the ER in Charlotte for about 15 years um, in two or three ERs that my group covered. And it's it, it's great. I love the practice of emergency medicine. You know, there's a, something really um, deeply rewarding about being able to make this immediate impact in the life of another human being that's ill or injured or suffering. Um, so I have really enjoyed my practice, mostly. So I think this is important for my audience because since I left ER, I th- think a lot of people think there must be something wrong with the field, which is not at all the case. It just wasn't the right field for me. For me personally, I realized I needed to really get to know my patients and have a very good relationship with them that was kind of lasting and I could see them through the end of a problem, yeah. which really was not compatible with working right. in the ER. But go ahead and tell us just for the listeners who hear that side of my story and maybe it deters them from emergency medicine, some of the good things that you just love about being you know, in that field. Well, I like the pace. It's, you know, obviously it's very fast paced. I like the problem solving aspects you know, you're, you're constantly, um, you're constantly being given these challenges of, of solving a puzzle almost. And I liked that. Um, I like the procedural stuff and you have this intense camaraderie with the people you work with, you know, it's trial by fire sometimes. Um, but also really, I like the patients, you know, I think if you approach every patient encounter with the perspective of, how can I make a difference right now for this person? What is the best thing I can do for them to help them? Yes. And you can't do what they want necessarily. You can't even do what you want <laughs> necessarily. Right. Um, but if you go in, you say, what do you expect to get from this? How can I help you the most? I think it does get really rewarding because people are so grateful that you can impact their situation. And then sometimes, you know, you get to save a life. That's That's huge. I mean, that's literally life-changing. I think that um, it's so important to hear you say that because the relationship you can have with patients as a physician is so multidimensional, right? I want to know you for a long time and get to know your whole story. You can completely change somebody's life in just one singular encounter, make this really bad experience for them better or whatever's going on. We're similar until I say, nobody wants to come see me. You know, I'm not (laughs) a doctor that anybody ever wants to have infertility or be sitting in my office. That's not a place you want to be. And the emergency room is the same way. Nobody wants to be there. It's always fraught with some type of anxiety or stress around the encounter. And how you relate and approach patients makes a huge difference in how they tolerate that experience. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet? Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. I love Ritual and I love taking their Essential for Women 18 plus every single day. One reason I love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence. So every bottle 
feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable. It's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients, and they have industry leading sustainability standards. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they do this by partnering directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer is upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a Caraway for every cook. Their internet famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit carawayhome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited-time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. Mm-hmm. Yes, and again, I think women are inherently good at that. You know, we tend to have an instinctual understanding of, of other people's situations. When did you decide to have kids in medicine? So I'm always in awe of people that do it in residency. I didn't. I, I waited till I was done. So I think I was uh, 32 with my firstborn and 38 with my third child. Um, so I waited until we were, you know, relatively settled and had babysitting help. And I, you know, kind of took the easy road. <laughs> no, it's still really hard. How did that impact you and your career? Were you able, how much time did you take off afterward? Was it hard to go back to those intense shifts when you had a little one? Oh, yeah, yeah. And my third kid, she would never take a bottle, no matter what we oh, did. Of course. So my nanny had to bring her to the ER. <laughs> I <laughs> I love she <laughs> when she was a baby. Because like, that's convenient, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it was very hard. I, of course, it's very hard. You know, in emergency medicine, you work nights, weekends, holidays, you miss a lot of stuff. Um, I remember my, my little boy, when he was two, his preschool teacher asked him what his parents did for a living. And he said, 
my daddy knifes people. He's a surgeon. Oh. But, and my mommy sleeps all day. <laughs> <laughs> Those <laughs> night shifts catching up on yeah. you. So yeah, it sucked quite a bit, a lot of the time. And I ultimately did start working part-time, which is one of the beauties of ER is that, you know, you're not trying to maintain an office schedule with, you know, regular hours and regular patients. So I think with my third, I was down to working pretty part-time. What is part-time for the ER, like for people who aren't aware what that means? You know, I think it's very individual depending on your practice and what they offer. Um, For me, I started, I was working probably three shifts a week and then I eventually went down to um, one shift a week. Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're balancing all the being a mom, working craziness. How did you decide? When did you decide to write a book? Was this something you were always set to do? Did you have an idea come to you? Tell me about the very beginning of that journey. For me, it started as a reader. I love reading. I always have loved reading. And I just wanted to try my hand at this thing that I so admire in other people. And I literally sat down and started writing one day. And I didn't have any idea what I was doing. So that is not the way to go about it. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, I want to write. And you just started getting thoughts off your brain onto paper? Um, Yeah, it led to an immense need for revision. But I realized pretty quickly within a couple of weeks that I was hooked. You know, I was dreaming about it. I was pulling over to the, on the side of the road to scribble something down. I was thinking about it all the time. And the other thing that I figured out very early on is that I had a really distinctive writing voice. And I think that's, that's one of the things that's key if you want to write fiction is you've got to have a unique, recognizable style. You know, the literary world, world refers to it as your voice. Um, and I realized I had a voice. I was writing book reviews and could kind of tell you know, if somebody had showed me a passage and I would recognize it as my own writing. And I realized that that was a benefit. Um, now, that being said, I, again, I didn't know what I was doing. And it took me a long time to figure it out. Very humbling. So you were, I'm assuming you're, you know, out of training as a mom at the point where you're starting to work on writing this. Is that right? Yeah. So that's right. I was well out of training. Um, and I know a lot of female doctors who write with very young children and with um, you know, burgeoning early practices, and I, I don't know how they do it. Um, it's very hard. I mean, it is so freaking hard to do anything with a little kid. I know they're they're. I was about to say they're terrible. They're amazingly wonderful, but they they're want amazingly all labor intensive. Yes, like they want all your time. <laughs> yeah. Now that being said, my my um, daughter was three, and actually she wound up being just absolute fodder for the book. I put a three year old into it, and that character gets her own fan mail. No, oh, I love it. <laughs> Yeah, her name's Delaney and the Queen of Hearts. And um, yeah, so I had this three-year-old running around and I just mined that little sucker for every funny thing she said. (laughs) That's great. It's like, she's like right there in your real world anyway. So you might as well just put her into the book, right? Yeah. So I took these, I mean, again, I I had help. I had to get a babysitter and I had to restructure a lot to be able to do it. So I think that's such an important point. So this is something that was kind of penetrating you, it sounds like there was almost a book in you that needed to get out. You're pulling over on the side of the road. You're thinking about it when you're sleeping. And so to, in order to make this goal start to look like a reality, you have to put time into your day for it. You had to schedule time to write. You had to get a babysitter. Is that right? Yeah. I gave up watching TV for probably two years. I mean, you know how it is. Um, we 
physicians tend to throw ourselves into things heart and soul. <laughs> and I did that, but it meant something had to give. There, there's no way that you can do something really, really well and do it half-assed. You know, you can't, you have to put time into it and you have to put dedication into it. And that requires some sacrifice. So I don't know this about fiction writing since I'm still very early on the other side of things. Did you write, did you write your full book? And so did you write The Queen of Hearts? Was that your first book? And then you went to try to go find a book agent? How did the journey look for you? Well, again, it was really humbling. So I wrote the book. I revised it a billion times. I got a local editor to help me. Um, And then you have to get representation from a literary agent, most of whom are in New York, um, if you want to sell the book to a big publisher. You can always self-publish. There's small presses. You know, there's a lot of different routes to publishing, and they all have advantages and disadvantages. I wanted to traditionally publish with one of the New York publishers. And the way you do that is you write this one-page letter. It's called a query letter. And it sums up your book and talks about you. And it has to be concise and hooky and interesting. And I sent out easily 100 letters that got rejected before anybody picked me up. Tons of letters. So you're writing this one page, trying to put your whole everything into this one page. And you're just getting rejections. It got to the point where... I would hear my computer make the email noise and I would feel my face flame up in shame because I knew it was going to be another rejection. And I wasn't used to rejection. You know, I've, I've always thought if you work hard, you'll get what you want. Right. That's what we're taught in medicine for the most <laughs> that's part. What we're taught. And that's a very privileged assumption to begin with, obviously. But, but I thought that if I tried hard enough, it would happen. And so for a long time, it didn't happen. And there was nothing I could do but keep trying. So it was, it was hard. How long do you think this process went on where you were getting rejections before you had somebody who was interested? I think at least a year and a half. So you just kept finding new people to try to send your query letter to? Is that what happened? Or did you revamp the idea? You burn the bridge. You can't go back and re-query somebody. So I I sent them out in batches of about 10 or 12 at a time. And I kept, you know, revising the letter and revising the letter. And the whole time I was revising the book and revising the book. And um, I ultimately changed the title and that seemed to help get attention. Um, But yeah. What was the first title? um, The very first title was something stupid. And then an agent who read the letter said to me, you know, I think you need to change the title. So I changed it to Trauma Queen. Okay. I like that too, though. Yeah. Because one of the protagonists in that book is a trauma surgeon. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the publisher, Penguin Random House, ultimately changed it to the Queen of Hearts because the other protagonist is a cardiologist. Yes. Which is the perfect name. Such a good book. Yeah. So, okay. So a year and a half go by, you're sending out this little letters and batches. What did it feel like? How did it go about getting your, I don't even know what it is. Is it an acceptance letter? And I'm interested. Let's talk letter. Like what happens if it's not a rejection? This is an interesting story. So this is the thing that I had longed for, right? For for years. I had worked so hard to get to this moment. And what actually happened is I was driving my kids to school one day about seven in the morning and I get this phone call. And I know what you're thinking, but nobody calls with good news at seven in the morning, right? Right. So it turned out to be my sister. And she said, um, come home because Roseanne is dying. And Roseanne is my um, beloved stepmother. Mm. And she hadn't perfect health, young college professor. I'd just seen her. We'd been hiking in the mountains. And um, 
I jumped in the car. I drove for like seven straight hours through the mountains to get home to Kentucky, um, hoping to get there before she died. Time, yeah. Um, and on, I stopped for gas in Knoxville, Tennessee, literally on Rocky Top. <laughs> and um, this, uh, my phone rang, and it was a New York agent, and she said she wanted to represent me. And I can remember just like looking up to the heavens and sort of fluttering my hands because I knew that I should be ecstatic, excited, right? This is your moment. Yeah. It should be one of the happiest moments of my life and I couldn't feel anything. So it was ironic. I, I couldn't even answer her or get back to her. And and weirdly in that space of time, I think I heard from four or five other agents who um, were interested and I never, I, I didn't even talk to any of them for three or four days. So, so you're, yeah, this is crazy, right? So you've been dreaming of this moment. Then it's actually happening when you have this terrible personal thing going on that you can't yeah. even process the success. Yeah. Yeah. And then ultimately, you know, once everything settled down and I was able to talk to the original agent that called me, I loved her and I wound up signing with her and she sold the book within two weeks to the world's biggest publisher. That's amazing. So it was, it was, it worked out really well for the book. Um, Yeah. But it's just sort of one of those strange life moments where things collide in a really weird way. It's just so representative of how real life is. We think mm-hmm. of things happening independently, but really it's just, this is when it happens and you have no control over it. Like so much in life, yes. yes. So it gets signed by a publisher and then, and you've already written the book, then what happens? Um, it was about two more years before it was published. They Isn't wanted crazy? To <laughs> yeah. It's so crazy yeah. long. Yeah, it was long. Um, I wound up rewriting the second half of the book because they wanted some changes. And <laughs> excuse me. And then there's so much that goes into publication. You know, you do like I'm getting ready to start a 30 city book tour for the next book. Um, so and you do a lot of social media, which I know you are in particular a genius at. Um, but, you you know, there's writing articles and answering interviews and um, all kinds of stuff. So it it really became a full time job for me. Yeah. So is when did you decide, because you had a career transition around this sometime in here where you left traditional emergency medicine to go do something else. Is that right? That's right. So I had a very serendipitous job offer um, right before the Queen of Hearts was published, I think. Um, Somebody offered me a job in a big downtown skyscraper in Charlotte. Nice. Beautiful. down there. There was a medical clinic where people could come in and get allergy shots. And they wanted an ER doctor on site in case anyone had an anaphylactic reaction to their shot. And so the guy that called me, he's like, he said, this is going to be boring. You'll be in a little room with no windows. Oh, you're like, I'm a writer. This is perfect. (laughs) I was like, oh, I don't get bored. I'll take that. (laughs) So I took that job. And um, yeah, man, it was awesome. I was getting paid to sit in a room. Not paid very much. (laughs) But but something, right? Make you feel comfortable kind of exploring writing to its full potential. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was the perfect environment. No distractions, unless someone did. Anaphylaxis, you know. Which they sometimes did. <laughs> that was not so cool because I was in a bank. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was a great job. So when the Queen of Hearts like came out, what did it feel like when you got that first copy of your real-life book? Oh, surreal. Surreal. Just seeing my name on a book spine was very weird. Yeah. I mean, how did you internalize... I have a hard time with this and I try to talk to other people about it. These things that you dream of or you accomplish, like when they're really happening, I'll give an example. When I had this recently 
this billboard in Times Square and I'm there and staring at it with my kids. It's so surreal that it's hard to celebrate the moment. I know that sounds funny, but it's like you can't even really believe it's happening. Did you have any of that feeling like, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. How do I just live in the moment? Oh yeah. I mean, there were moments of really wild joy. Like the, the, um, when I finally was able to celebrate getting an agent, that was such a happy time. Um, but also I, I think I have this perverse impulse to just continually keep resetting the bar higher. Right. Yes. I know it's so bad. Yes. What is, what is wrong with us that we do this? Like, you know, you, it's like your happiness sort of ebbs after a while and you and you just want the next thing up the rung. And that's so perverse because I wish I could just keep that intense joy when I succeed at something instead of continually trying to, you know, do another thing. But but I guess that's human nature. I guess so. So what about the so Queen of Hearts is a huge success in the book world, right? I mean, it seems like it to me. You you would know better than me, but I feel like that story resonates with so many people who are in medicine and people who are not in medicine at all. It's such a good story. Well, I would I would say it's a moderate success. <laughs> okay, I knew you would say something different. I know. Humble. Well, you know, you reset the bar. It is a good, it is a big success. And um, it was reviewed in the New York times and it had national publicity and in, in all these magazines and newspapers. And I have loved hearing from readers literally all over the globe. I mean, I have um, pictures that people have sent me of the book cover in all seven continents, including Antarctica. Oh my gosh. I love Antarctica. that. Yeah. Um, and there are, um, I don't know. I probably have pictures from 60 some countries and I wound up talking to a lot of these people on social media and it's super cool. Um, I've loved that aspect of being a writer. Now I've forgotten the question. (laughs) Oh, I I don't even remember my question either. I think I was asking you about, you know, feel that feeling of having the book be a success. When do you decide to go from there to write another book? Was that book already in the process while you're touring with Queen of Hearts or how did that come about? balancing act. Um, I was writing another book right after the Queen of Hearts and my publisher did not want it because they thought it was too sciencey. So I, I reluctantly put it on the back burner. Uh, what's the, what's the sciencey book about? Oh man, it was so cool. Um, well, it was actually kind of a mixture of science and finance, um, sort of centered around the, the biotechnology industry. It wasn't truly a thriller though. Um, it was more like kind of a psychological drama. Um, so, but they didn't want that. They thought that maybe my audience wouldn't read it, which I still think is wrong. I think my audience would read that. Mm-hmm. But they asked me to write something else and they offered me a contract for two more books. Well, that's congratulations. So you've got two more books. So Antidote to Everything is one of them. And then there's another book for after that. Yeah. So the Antidote for Everything will be out February 18th. Um, and I'm, I'm actually doing a huge book tour for that one. Hopefully coming to see you. I know. I'm trying to get her to come to Austin, everybody. So I'm working on it. I know. That would be so great. Oh, oh, remind me. I got to tell you something about that. Okay. Um, Yeah. So the antidote for everything is um, the story of what goes spectacularly wrong in a friendship between a urologist and a family medicine doctor when one of them is unjustly fired. Um, That book took a long time to write. And in some ways it was harder than the first book because there was a lot more pressure and a lot more expectation and a shorter timeline. 
Um, and then now I'm working on a third book, which ironically is about um, an infectious disease specialist, a mother who's traveling with her two children during a um, novel viral pandemic. Oh, look at that. That book needs to get fast-tracked right now, huh? So yeah, it's funny. My publisher is pitching it as um, the hot zone meets Sophie's choice because she <laughs> has to make a decision about which of her two deathly ill children will get this one dose of an experimental antiviral medicine. So oh my gosh. <laughs> so I've gotten asked this before. So Queen of Hearts and Antidote for Everything, they are not like a sequel to the other book. I read them both. They are just have a related character. So they're kind of written in the same style, but you could read the antidote for everything without reading the Queen of Hearts, correct? Yes. So the protagonist in Antidote is a spinoff. She was a very minor character in the Queen of Hearts, one of the main character's medical school friends. And um, so the I think I'll do that for a lot of my books is just sort of spin off, pick a character who is minor and then make them the star of the next one. I love that idea because you've already kind of created them a little bit. You could just then dive in and explore them even more. Yeah. You've built this world and you're sort of staying in it. So to people who have not read any of your books, but who are listening to the podcast, how would you give the, you know, few lines summary for what Queen of Hearts and Antidote for Everything, what are they about? How would you describe them real quickly? And now a word from one of our sponsors, Rocket Money. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Embarrassingly, I am one of those as well. And Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you that otherwise could have been a time-consuming process. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it can be never-ending So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. They monitor your spending and help you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. That's rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. Rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. Well, they both center around themes of friendship as a fundamental human relationship. Um, So the Queen of Hearts is about two friends, a cardiologist and a trauma surgeon, who have been lifelong, very close friends, but one of them is hiding this significant secret from the other one. And it's not even, I think, so much what the secret is as to why she did it (laughs) that Mm -hmm. kind of drives the plot. Um, Then the antidote for everything, as I said, is about um, one of these two characters is fired uh, because the clinic where they practice tells them that they're no longer um, permitted to treat transgender patients because that conflicts with the... um, uh, priorities of the clinic administrators. Oh, this is such a North Carolina book, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, right. I live in North Carolina. What was said in South Carolina? Um, not to pick on those two states. But, <laughs> but yeah, so, but I was curious, you know, what happens when somebody's core ethical principles in practicing medicine challenged, yeah. conflict with the administrative principles or priorities? You know, I think it's kind of a valid question to ask is who gets to make decisions about medical care? Should that be politicians or administrators or insurance companies or doctors and patients. And, you know, I'm a doctor, so you can kind of guess where my opinion lies on that one. So I have to, I don't want to give spoilers away, but I will say, so doing Queen of Hearts, 
I remember the scene, which is, I believe, really relatively early in the book, but the two main characters who are friends are at a pool, like on their day off, and the trauma surgeon one, like, sees a guy choking, essentially has to do, like, you know, an emergency crike and her bathing suit. Like, how did that scene, how did you even come up with that scene? That scene was so, like, this should be on Grey's Anatomy craziness, but I could just picture the whole thing happening. It made me, like, I laughed out loud reading it being somebody in medicine. (laughs) I guess maybe that was my fantasy that I'd have to do that. I don't know how I call it. Right? Like as an ER doctor somewhere, you're like, shoot, that's going to rely on me that I'm going to have to crack them in my baby. I did have to do an emergency crack once, but it was in the ER. Um, Yeah. I I guess I thought, you know, like that would be very dramatic. (laughs) Um, and, And there are times, you know, like I have seen a handful of times where something happens in public and you wonder if you're going to have to intervene. And and both of my books have a scene like that. Antidote has a scene on an airplane where there's a call for a doctor. And you know, how many times has that happened to a lot of us? Literally my fear. I mean, I'm like, unless you need help getting pregnant, like I really can't help you anymore. Do not. (laughs) I mean, at least you're prepared. You're at least emergency medicine. I'm like, my ER days were so long ago. I cannot help you anymore. Yeah, no, it's a total fear. I was like, it's such a real fear. Um, When you, you know, are going, so you're going on this huge book tour and you're going, you're going to do tons of press. You're going to be talking. Do you get nervous speaking at any of these things? Or is this something that because you've lived this, these books so long, you don't get nervous when you talk about them? No, I totally get nervous. Um, I was not a public speaker at all when I started this process. And I have learned, you know, to, to be able to get up in front of people and give a speech, but I still get nervous about it. Like, I think I'm going to blurt out something um, completely inappropriate. Is my biggest fear. <laughs> That's your biggest fear. <laughs> no, I, that is a very justifiable fear. <laughs> I love you it. Know, you know. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you dealt with any imposter syndrome along the way, especially of entering into the world of being an author? You know, do you ever have you ever struggled with that? I know that's something that I have struggled with on and off a lot in my career. And I didn't know if there was something you've identified with at all. Yeah. I, you know, I see a lot about that. Um, I would say yes and no. Um, I feel strongly that, you know, this kind of creative endeavor is legitimate for anyone that undertakes it. Um, we're, you know, we're all capable of being writers. And I think for me, it's more a question of, sort of being self-punishing when I don't achieve the goals that I want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I have this very perverse impulse to continually strive for the next thing. And quite honestly, to feel jealousy of people that are doing better than me. And I wouldn't call that imposter syndrome necessarily. It's more like, you know, ugly envy syndrome, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like, why can't I do that? Or I should be able to do that. Almost like self-deprecating in some way that you're not achieving it. Yeah, I feel a little guilty if my sales aren't amazing or if I don't get, you know, the publicity that I, someone else is getting or, or you know, if people hate the book, which of course happens constantly. You know, there's no. so many opportunities for, um, you know, to feel inadequate. Um, so I try not to give in to that feeling. What about... What big dream do you have now, right? So we go through life with these big dreams. I want to become a doctor write a book. What's, where's the bar right now? What's the next step for you? Um, what I'd love to do is write a travel memoir. Oh, 
that would be my that would be my secret dream. I write travel logs now, and I really like that. Um, if I could put together a whole book of that kind of thing, that would be my fun fantasy dream. I'd like to see I'd like to see my books on TV or in a movie. That would be a cool dream. Um, but mainly, I guess I want to improve at my. I want my writing to improve. I would like my dysfunctional time management to improve. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. But all in all, I mean, I, I'm really happy. I love <laughs> really? it. Yeah. Your books are going to be made into something. I can tell. Um, what about, here's what I want to know. What, what advice do you give somebody who's at the very beginning of these stages? Maybe they have always been a lifetime reader. They feel like there's a book inside them. Where do you tell them to start? What's the advice you can give? Well, if you want to be a good writer, the first thing you have to be is a good reader. So I would say read extensively in the genre in which you would like to write, and but read analytically. You know, try to see why a given voice appeals to you. What keeps you turning the pages? What techniques is the author using that hooks your interest? And I, I actually teach a course on fiction writing for physicians, and so I've gotten kind of more knowledgeable about exactly how to identify those elements. But I do think it's key to read if you want to write. Um, And then the second thing I would say is make connections. There's some wonderful online groups for writers. There's an online group of female physician writers, actually, on Facebook. Um, And you can get so much support and so many good ideas from other people. Um, So finding, finding connections with people that are interested in the things you're interested in. I remember you posting in this group, trying to come up with a name or something for one of your... Yeah. I was like, I don't remember what the question was, but I remember you being like, I need help with this name or this something, or it was maybe. Yeah. I crowdsource with, with my female doctor groups all the time because they are so freaking creative (laughs) (laughs) and they always come up with something good. So you said you're, you teach a course. Is this an in-person course somewhere? Is this an online course? What is your course? Uh, yeah. So I got asked, I guess, two years ago to, um, to teach this course for, I guess it's like a continuing education company. Um, and this was their fun course. Um, they do a lot of CME stuff and, and also continuing legal education in different, different fields. But um, it was taught by Tess Garretson and Michael Palmer, who are big name doctor slash authors. And I think Michael Palmer died and they needed someone else to teach it. And um, <laughs> they must have, you know, kind of <laughs> you came up all because they asked me and I wasn't sure I could do it, but I love it. It's in Florida every year. Okay. So if anybody's interested, it's a course in Florida. How can they find it? What do they search? Uh, the company is called Seek, S-E-A-K. Um, and I honestly don't know what that acronym is for. Hmm, I don't either. I guess we'll figure that one out. If so, you Google fiction writing for physicians, it'll probably come up. Okay. So you teach the course, you're in all the places, you're going on the book tour. Tell us again, when does Antidote release? How can people support you? Because pre-sales and buying the book initially, that's a really big deal, right? Yeah. Pre-sales are really important for authors. Um, yeah. It releases February 18th. You can order it now. It's in all the places, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, your favorite local bookstore. Um, and I've got information on my website about the tour. It's kimmarymartin.com. But um, I think I'm going 30 some places. That's going to be so fun and so exhausting. Are you taking your family with you at all? Or are you just doing this solo? I'm doing it solo because I have one to three events every day in each place. And then I move to the next place (laughs) the next day. 
So I know I should be wrapping this up, but hold on. You have one to three events each place. Like what type of events are you doing? Just different places you're going for book signings or talks? It's just all varies. Um, Some are ticketed luncheons and some are evening bookstore talks and quite a few are in libraries. You're going to be so busy. I'm so proud of you. The, um, The last thing I want to talk about is you mentioned briefly about wanting to go down this traditional publishing road. And I know that there are a lot of people who are also self-publishing, not that anyone is better than the other. There's just pros and cons to both of them. In your mind, what was your driving factor for why you wanted to go a traditional road? And how do you feel or what have you learned about that process? Um, I wanted to do it because I wanted the support of a publisher behind me and, you know, help with covers and editing and marketing. Um, However, I think if you are good at those things, then maybe self-publishing might be a better option. You know, it depends on how much autonomy you want to have yourself. You don't get a lot of autonomy with a traditional publisher. Um, But for me, who had no, I I barely was on social media except for Facebook at the time. And now I love, love, love Instagram, but um, I didn't have any kind of ability to reach people on my own. So So you kind of knew selling your book from your own, if you were self-publishing, it wouldn't get the reach or the exposure or get into people's hands like it would with a big publisher behind it. Yes. Yeah. And I wanted to see it in a bookstore. You know, it's hard to get in a bookstore if you're with a tiny press or if you self-publish. Yeah. So you wanted that that vision of the dream, right? The book in the store on the shelves to come true. Yeah. I love it. Well, tell everybody where we can find you. So w- remind us again where your Instagram handle is and your website and all the places. Yeah, I think everything is Kimmery Martin. K-I-M-M-E-R-Y. Martin. Um, or, or Kimmery M maybe. Um, yeah, but I'm on the, I'm on the things. <laughs> I'm on the social media things. Are you, are you TikToking yet? Uh, no, I think that I would really screw that up. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Should I do that? You should do it. I did. I delayed doing it for a while because I was like, I'm too old for this and I'm not dancing, but there's, there's a ton of people there. So as far as reaching people, it's highly impressive how quickly you can reach a lot of know. people. Okay. I'll check it out. You should check it out. We can, we I'm can a, work on it. I'm like Elaine from Seinfeld dancing. So that you could, could give like point of view of your characters. <laughs> yeah. It would be so good. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much. I just have loved chatting with you. I know everybody who listens is going to love this too. And I just can't thank you enough for your time and sharing your wisdom with everybody. Oh, thank you, Natalie. All right, friends. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to me talk to Kimberly. I think she's just incredible and she's very inspiring to me. And the few things I want you to take away from this one, her books are great. So if you are a reader, and you have delayed reading because life, medical training, raising babies, all of those things, go get her books right now. They are worth reading. You will laugh out loud. You will cry. They really touch your soul. I have read them both and I love them. Pre-orders are a really big deal in the book world and I never knew this. So if you pre-order her book, The Antidote for Everything Now, that's a huge show of support for another woman a female physician who is chasing her passions and her dreams. But more than anything, thank you for all the love and support that you give to me along the way. I appreciate every listen, every download that I get. Anytime you send me an idea for an episode, I save it. I'm going to get to them all. I love you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.